When Russia invaded Ukraine, many feared the invasion would come to a quick and brutal end. Instead, however, Ukraine has showed tremendous resilience in the face of the unprovoked attack as it fights to determine its own future. Welcome to the California Law Review podcast. Our goal is to provide an accessible and thought-provoking overview of the scholarship we publish. Today we are discussing Be Not Afraid, how Ukraine determined its future, united the West, and strengthened a global democracy. An article from Berkeley Law student Hiep Wynn. Hiep's article was recently published in California Law Review Online, the web edition of the California Law Review. Hiep, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, to begin with, could you tell us about the international norms and instruments that protect Ukraine's right to de- determine its own future? Article 1, Section 2 of the UN Charter uh, enshrined the self-determination of peoples, the ability to choose one's destiny uh, as a fundamental right of every country. Uh, in 1970, the UN General Assembly passed the Friendly Nations Declaration, which made illegal any actions that would dismember or impair totally or in part the territorial integrity or political unity of sovereign and independent states. This declaration, complemented by similar language in Article 6 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, codifies each country's right to self-determination free of forced foreign interference over their internal affairs or unprovoked invasion of their sovereign land. And I guess we've, we've all watched as Russia has committed this invasion and, and done some really atrocious things. But could you explain to us how exactly um, those actions broke these longstanding international laws? So Putin sought to expand his power here, um, conquer another Slavic people and end Ukraine's pursuit of a democratic future away from his grasp uh, as a member of the EU and NATO. Uh, his government overconfidently stated that Russia would topple Kiev in three days and that Ukrainians would welcome Russian forces as liberators. Uh, He lied to his people about denazifying Ukraine while bombing a Holocaust memorial and conveniently ignoring that Ukrainian President Zelensky is Jewish and the son of a Holocaust survivor. He cowardly shelled civilian targets uh, like maternity hospitals, assisted care centers, evacuation sites that clearly designated uh, for safeguarding children, apartment blocks. Uh, He's killed over 1,100 innocent Ukrainians and over 18,000 of his own troops since his needless war began. Uh, And in doing so, he's broken these international principles around self-determination, a country's ability to choose its own future by trying to choose that country's future for it or force that future uh, onto that country. Um, And he's really given the world in the process a devastating glimpse at these deadly regional conflicts driven by dictators' desire for power that plagued Europe for centuries prior to World War II. And in the face of these horrors, What's been, I think, surprising to a lot of us is that Ukraine has been very successful at repelling the Russian invasion on all fronts. What have Ukrainians proved through this successful resistance? Ukrainians have determined that their future as a sovereign state uh, is theirs alone to decide. Uh, And in doing so, they've galvanized the West to mount decisive sanctions that have crippled Russia's ability to wage wars of conquest, therefore enforcing international laws on self-determination. Ukraine's resistance the West's unity, and Russia's naked aggression have sharply elevated public support for the post-World War II order governed by international rules regarding self-determination, democracy, and human rights, and institutions like the EU, which were formed to place these principles in action. It's also proved the indispensability of multilateral alliances like NATO, 
whose mutual defense pact protects member states from any country that violates their sovereignty. These groundbreaking precedents will protect the rights of vulnerable countries far beyond Europe's borders. Putin has called the collapse of the Soviet Union one of the greatest tragedies of the last century. What about this ideology makes Russia so hostile to the idea of an independent Ukraine? And what is it exactly that motivates this war? So Putin wrongly believes that Ukraine and most Slavic countries in Eastern Europe constitute Russia's historic sphere of influence. He falsely thinks that Moscow is therefore entitled to control their affairs and ensure their friendliness to Russian domestic and foreign policies. Russia currently has this type of control over Belarus and most uh, mostly had this friendly arrangement with Ukraine for a decade until Ukrainians revolted and demanded their freedom uh, in the Orange Revolution of 2004 and the successful Euromaidan of 2014. The latter resulted in the Kremlin-friendly president fleeing the country in disgrace uh, and his replacement by duly elected successions of liberal governments. One of the ways Putin has justified this invasion of Ukraine is by arguing that Russia is entitled to a sphere of protection or a sphere of influence um, around their nation. It sounds like he believes, you know, NATO and in EU expansion threaten Russia's security. Is there any merit to this argument? There are lots of pundits who argue that Ukraine and its neighbors should not anger or provoke Russia by pursuing democracy or EU and NATO membership, uh, and that NATO countries were wrong to allow eastward expansion after the collapse of the USSR. They also continually goad Kyiv into accepting massive territorial concessions in exchange for peace. However, this West-splaining perpetuates imperialism and colonialism by denying Eastern European states agency in determining their future. It instead treats states like Ukraine as pawns in a game of global chess. It ignores the violent history that Ukrainian and its neighbors experienced under Russian domination that motivates their NATO and EU membership applications. And can you tell us a bit more about this violent history of Russian imperialism? In the USSR and its satellite states, uh, people experienced political repression, cultural genocide, uh, and the Holodomor, uh, a famine that killed millions and was designed to subjugate Ukrainians and force them to accept Soviet rule. This doesn't even begin to describe the Kremlin's brutal crackdowns on democratic dissidents in countries like Poland and Slovakia, uh, behind the Iron Curtain. One of the issues, it seems, when it comes to holding Russia accountable is the fact that international law has no true judicial enforcement mechanisms. For instance, Russia can withdraw from any international criminal court statutes they like, and both Moscow and Washington um, are not parties to the International Court of Justice's compulsory jurisdiction. Are there any mechanisms to enforce international law on self-determination here? Unfortunately, um, there are no true judicial enforcement mechanisms uh, that can be truly effective against states that don't uh, come in and submit to the ICJ's jurisdiction here, unfortunately, or the ICC's juris jurisdiction. Um, it's often up to alliances and countries to enforce international law. Um, examples include NATO enforcing UN resolutions against genocide uh, by ending the mass killing of Muslim Bosnians and Kosovans uh, in the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s. Other examples include countries upholding international law against racial discrimination by divesting from and boycotting South Africa during its apartheid era. Uh, and most recently, Western countries sanctioning Russia uh, for its illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014. And to take a step back just for a second, what exactly merits the West's involvement in this matter? Um, I guess, why should 
we be involved in sending military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine or imposing economic measures that adversely affect our own economy, like the sanctions we just discussed? Putin's invasion of Ukraine, uh, while clearly, which clearly aimed to decapitate the country's leadership and install a favorable regime, uh, demonstrates just how far Russia and other liberal actors will go to expand their power and defy global norms on sovereignty. Putin's hinted that he won't stop just with Kyiv. He's previously invaded Georgia. He's occupied Moldova's Transnistrian region, uh, all under the guise of protecting Russian minorities. He's issued ultimatums to NATO that have included uh, demands for the withdrawal of allied forces uh, out of Eastern European countries, including Baltic NATO states that fell under Soviet domination before 1991. And foreign policy analysts routinely suggest that Putin aims to rebuild that old Russian empire and restores what he sees as lost Russian influence over its neighboring states, much like how Hitler annexed most of Central Europe in the 1930s. Russia portends even more brazen upheavals of international law, um, and therefore the West needs to enforce global rules on self-determination and sovereignty uh, in order to protect uh, its own NATO members uh, and to protect these, these principles uh, and smaller countries as a whole. And as your article discusses, one of the ways the United States and other Western countries have responded to Russia's invasion is through the use of sanctions. These sanctions on Russia have been the heaviest and most destructive measures applied um, in, re in modern history. Can you tell us more about these sanctions and how they hinder Russia's war effort? EU and NATO states have severed many Russian banks from SWIFT, the global payment system, and other key financial markets. They've effectively stopped Russia from importing any goods as a result. They've also frozen Russians' ability to do business with the West, because so many of these um, transactions occur over these payment systems. Russian companies may no longer raise money in most Western markets, uh, and they're barred from exporting luxury items like vodka and diamonds. Russian oligarchs' capital and their assets have been frozen. Some Western nations have even gone as far as banning oil and coal imports. This overwhelming response has prevented Russia from buying the microchips, the materials, the equipment they need uh, to replenish their military. Um, this will end up causing Russia's GDP to drop by over 30% by the end of 2022, uh, thereby ending its ability to effectively finance war. And another way NATO and the EU have become involved is through the delivery of weapons to Ukraine. Can you tell me more about these shipments and how they will aid the war effort? NATO and the EU have delivered um, extensive weapons, including anti-aircraft, defense systems, tanks, firearms, and protective equipment. Uh, this sustains the Ukrainian armed forces without risking a direct NATO engagement with the Russians. NATO complemented these weapons with a vastly increased troop presence and air coordination in NATO member states bordering or close to Russia, uh, one welcomed by these Eastern European states. And this sends a clear and unmistakable warning to Putin, in addition to supporting Ukraine, that allied countries will fulfill their Article 5 commitments to defend every inch of NATO territory. What is the effect of these unified sanctions and military aid on international law? And what message is being sent by Western nations? They're a clear enforcement of international law on self-determination and set a precedent of shattering uh, economic consequences for any country that attempts to invade another sovereign state. Um, the West is saying, look, this isn't 1914, this isn't 1938, this is 2022. The world is now governed by rules 
that prevent unprovoked incursions, not regional powers or the whims of dictators. And allied nations working together can and will give these rules teeth. Public support for Ukraine continues to reach new highs, with most Americans and Europeans supporting the war effort in global institutions like the EU and NATO that are responsible for keeping the peace after World War II. How has the support for Ukraine impacted Western leaders' judgments on how much aid to send and how many sanctions they can levy? As a partial result of this elevated public sentiment that you described, um, EU and NATO countries have united to sanction Moscow, and they've sent massive humanitarian and military relief for Kyiv. Um, this has allowed allied countries to create a resounding collective impact that few uh, pundits and experts predicted months and years ago, especially after the chaos of populism, Brexit, and the Trump presidency. Uh, Putin not only actively bet against this unity, but he actively sowed division in allied countries for his benefit. And he was wrong. And now he's lost almost everything. And this newfound unity of the West is going to have broad and transformative effects for the rules-based world order, um, strengthening its ability to stand up for smaller countries' sovereignty and democratic institutions uh, around the world, um, just like it has in Europe. Some have, some have suggested that part of Putin's calculation was that refugees from this war effort would destabilize and divide Europe. Has Western unity held on the issue of refugees? Putin's calculated incorrectly here as well. Uh, Poland has taken in over 2 million Ukrainians displaced from the war, Romania over 500,000, and the U.S. over 100,000. A smaller number, uh, since many Ukrainians will likely prefer to remain in Eastern Europe and return to their homes to rebuild after the fighting ends, a process that the West will support. Um, thousands of volunteers have poured into Ukrainian border regions from all of these Eastern European neighboring states to help migrants access food and shelter, an effort that Western countries have also supported uh, with billions of dollars in relief money. President Biden has recently stated that NATO is stronger than it's ever been because of the Russian aggression in Ukraine. Can you tell us a bit about how this is so? Well, the growing threat of Russia uh, has motivated countries that were once on the fence about NATO membership uh, to consider applications to the alliance. This includes Finland and Sweden. Uh, their additions will achieve the exact opposite of what Russia desired from its aggression. More NATO neighbors and greater enforcement of international law on self-determination, in addition uh, to making NATO's ties just stronger with each other uh, as a whole. Um, you have states like Germany, uh, which nominally were neutral prior to this. They have never sent out weapons shipments before to another country, but they've been forced to do so because of this threat from Russia. All the things that used to defy the different you know, NATO countries, whether it was issues on migration, issues on you know, levels of democratic norms, they've all been kind of put to the side here because of that common threat. And it's brought the West together and magnified those similarities more than those differences, uh, more than ever before. Are there any implications of this resurgent Western unity beyond Europe? That's a great question. Uh, China over in East Asia still muses about supporting the Russian invasion. They're still actively threatening Taiwan, uh, continuing to conduct incursions into the South China Sea and South and Southeast Asia that skirt the edges of international law on self-determination. This is in addition to ethically questionable investment practices that have led African Latin American and Middle Eastern countries to owe Beijing huge sums of debt and prevented them from condemning China's 
egregious uh, human rights violations against Uyghur Muslims and Tibetans. Um, a resurgent West, working together with its democratic partners in the Asia-Pacific, could easily coalesce again to hold China accountable for these violations of international law. Sanctions that could devastate Beijing's economy and sever its goods and supplies from the entire global supply chain are all on the table, uh, just like they were for Russia. And so as they're, as they're watching all of this play out in Ukraine, what does the, the Chinese government have to say about this newfound Western strength and, and coordination? There's a great article out uh, by Hu Wei, uh, who directs the Chinese government's Public Policy Institute. Uh, and he recently argued that the democratic countries uh, in uh, and around the Asia Pacific have recently formed regional alliances like the Quad, which composes Australia, India, Japan, and the United States, and AUKUS, which composes Australia, the United Kingdom, and the U.S. Um, that and these they they deepen their economic and defense cooperation in the Asia Pacific through these alliances, um, and this already limits China's potential for territorial incursions. However, with an enhanced reputation and stronger resolve from Western success in countering Russia's authoritarianism and its invasions uh, of sovereign states, these democratic countries and others may be willing to form new supply chains and trade agreements uh, that bind them even more tightly together. Uh, and this decreases their dependence on China and bolsters their ability and their willingness as a result to sanction Beijing in the event of a Chinese international law violation. And this would effectively erode Beijing's growing influence in the region and empower not only the defense of existing Asian democracies, but also inspire even more democratic reform within Asia. And in response to all of this, what is China likely to do? Who correctly analyzes in this case that China's only choice in the wake of Russia's failure in Ukraine and Western unity uh, that has partially caused that, that failure uh, is to avoid antagonizing the West and its democratic partners. This means no more territorial incursions, human rights violations, or support for rogue states like Russia or like North Korea, uh, and in Russia's case, whose invasion China has so far backed off from funding, partly due to that consistent stream of Western pressure. Uh, and this deterrent of strengthened global democracies may therefore effectively enforce international law protecting the sovereignty of smaller states across Asia and Europe, and perpetuating the rules-based liberal world order uh, for decades to come. Those are some, those are some fascinating implications. And uh, in closing, I'd love for you to leave us with any final thoughts on the Russian war in Ukraine. Pope John Paul II uh, continuously repeated in the face of Soviet repression, be not afraid. President Biden also echoed these words uh, in his resounding Warsaw speech, uh, late last month. Um, the horrors of Russian aggression, communities terrorized by cluster bombs, children hiding from shelling and makeshift shelters, families starving to death in siege cities uh, like Mariupol, um, demonstrate the stakes at hand if the world is governed not by international norms and rules regarding self-determination, human rights, and democracy, but instead by regional powers hellbent on territorial expansion. This is how the world existed for millennia prior to World War II and why per capita deaths from wars were consistently and disturbingly high prior to the 1940s and the rules-based world order international law that we take for granted today coming into effect. The Ukrainians, they weren't afraid about that. 
They refused to acquiesce and they refused to turn back the clock on liberty. Uh, and in defending their sovereignty, they united the West to enforce international law on self-determination through a devastating array of sanctions against Russia. And the precedent set by these developments strengthen the rules-based world order and guarantee more sovereignty, more democracy, and human rights far beyond Europe's borders. Thanks to Ukraine, international law is going to be enforced. The smaller countries won't be overrun, and our world is more hopeful for it. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Yep. Thanks so much for having me on. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the California Law Review podcast. If you would like to read Yep's article, you can find it online at californialawreview.org. For updates on new episodes and articles, please follow us on Twitter. You can find a list of the editors who worked on this volume of the podcast in the show notes. We'll see you in the next episode.